Whenever we think about the miraculous works of Jesus, we tend to think about things like walking on water, turning water into wine, multiplying bread and fish, giving sight to blinded eyes, raising people from the dead, and other such things. As amazing as those miracles were, I believe there is an even greater miracle performed by our Lord. It is the miracle of changing people's lives. The Lord Jesus Christ has changed countless lives down through the centuries. One of the many was a man named John. And it is is his first letter that we have begun to consider together. So please turn with me in your Bible near the end of the New Testament to the little letter titled 1 John. You might have to find the book of Revelation and go backwards just a little bit to 1 John chapter 1. And please follow along as I read the opening four verses of this first chapter. 1 John chapter 1 verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested or revealed, and and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us and truly Our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your or our joy may be full. The author of this little letter is the beloved Apostle John. John was the son of Zebedee. His mother, Salome, may have been the sister of Mary, the mother of our Lord. If that was the case then John was the cousin of Jesus. However, we can't be dogmatic on that. It's just trying to piece together these names, especially when we don't have last names to help us. We do know that John had at least one brother whose name was James. James and John both had a fishing business and evidently were partners with the Apostle Peter. To give you an idea of the kind of person John was, before we look at his letter... Back up with me to Mark chapter 3. And I want to show you just a few snapshots of John in the gospel records. We'll begin in the second gospel record, the gospel of Mark chapter 3. This will give us a feel for this man who wrote the letter we are going to be considering, Lord willing, for many weeks to come. Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. And Jesus went up on the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted, and they came to him. Then he appointed twelve that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach, and to have power to heal sickness, and to cast out demons. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, now watch this, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Jesus gave John and his brother James the nickname Sons of Thunder. What that tells us is that John was a fervent, ambitious, aggressive, charged up kind of man. 
He was a thunderous man. Usually, when many people think about John, they think of a guy who was a weak, mild sissy, frankly. Uh, a, a hippie sort of guy who went around with the, the, his fingers up in a peace sign saying, Love one another, man. Love one another. Well, if that's the way you picture John, you've completely missed it. John was a son of thunder. He was a thunderous man. Look at another snapshot over in Luke chapter 9, the very next gospel. Luke chapter 9. Verse 51 says, Now it came to pass, when the time had come for him, now him, of course, a reference to Jesus, Luke 9, 51, when, it, when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers before his face, and as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him, because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, specifically James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? Can you imagine this? Lord, should we burn them up? It's obvious that James and John did not have missionary hearts at this point. And Jesus rebuked them for being hateful and intolerant. Look at verse 55. Jesus turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. So this event shows us that at this point in his life, John had a lot of zeal, but no sensitivity. Now zeal is a good quality but it has to be balanced with sensitivity. This gives us some insight into John's character, his personality. He was very aggressive. He was very ambitious. Matthew 20 shows us this. Go back to the first gospel record for another snapshot. Matthew chapter 20. Verse 20. Matthew 20, verse 20 says, Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons. Now, if you've forgotten what I mentioned a moment ago in the introduction, James and John were the, uh, the brothers and the sons of Zebedee. And so this is Zebedee's sons. So this is James and John. They came, the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on the left, in your kingdom. Now let's pause here for just a moment. It is patently clear that James and John were behind this. How do we know that? We know that because, number one, they came along with their mother. They're grown men. They came with their mother. Number two, the other ten disciples, as the story unfolds, did not get angry at Mrs. Zebedee, but at James and John. They knew who was behind this. And thirdly, Jesus gave his reply to James and John, not to their mother. So we know that James and John were behind this request. Maybe they didn't have the nerve to ask themselves, or maybe they thought, hey, we have a better chance of Jesus granting this if our mom asks, because it's hard to turn down a mom, right? So they put their mom up to this, and this event again shows us that John was an ambitious man. He wanted to sit on the right or on the left in the kingdom. But notice the response of Jesus, verse 22. Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you ask. 
Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? They, notice the plural, they said to him, Jesus is talking to James and John, we are able. So he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet, men, it shall not be so among you. We're not going to operate like this. You need to change your thinking here, guys. It's not going to be this way. Not in our, not in our ministry, not in our group. It's not going to go this way. It will not be this way among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Again, this passage points out the ambition of John. He was a goal-oriented man. He wanted to reach the top. He wanted to sit on the right hand or the left hand of Jesus in the kingdom. And the Lord told him that the way to the throne is the way of the cross. He wanted a crown. Jesus gave him a cup, a cup of suffering. He wanted power. Jesus gave him servanthood. He wanted to rule. Jesus gave him a martyr's death, if not martyrdom, at least suffering almost to the point of martyrdom. The Lord Jesus took this thunderous, ambitious, aggressive man named John and redirected his zeal towards servanthood and ministry. Jesus transformed this son of thunder into what uh, what he became known to be the apostle of love. It's something to realize that when the Lord was passing out work near the end of his earthly stay, he told Peter, feed my sheep. You remember that? But he told John, take care of my mother. That ought to show just how much Jesus trusted John. That passage, by the way, is John 19. Turn over there with me for one other snapshot. John chapter 19. This is when our Lord was on the cross... One of his final seven sayings, John 19, verse 25, Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. By the way, Jesus was not saying, Mom, look at me as so many wrongly interpret this passage. When he says, Behold, your son, he wasn't saying, Oh, look at me, look at what I'm going through. No, he was referring to John. Behold, here's your new son, Mom, because verse 27 makes it clear. Then he said to the disciple, Behold, your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. Notice how John refers to himself here in verse 26. He calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. All the way through this gospel, he refers to himself that way. It's almost as if John could never get over the fact that Jesus loved him. So he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. John was somewhere between the age of 20 and 23 when Jesus called him to be an apostle, maybe even younger. 
What a thrill it must have been for him at such a young age to follow Jesus around for three years. And during that time, Jesus transformed his life. He ended up being a teammate in the ministry with Peter throughout the book of Acts. John was in his early 20s when Jesus called him. He was in his 70s or 80s when he wrote this letter. Now consider this. For 60 years approximately, he thought about and reflected upon and taught about the life of Jesus Christ. 60 years. Then one day, the Spirit of God instructed him to pick up his pen, and John was given the tremendous privilege of writing a letter that would become known as 1 John. That's the letter we want to consider together. Let's turn over to it, to 1 John chapter 1. Notice how John opens his letter in the very first verse. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. John opens his letter very similar to the way he opens his gospel. John 1.1, same author, by the way, Gospel of John written by this same man. John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We know that John is referring to the Lord Jesus when he makes that statement, and he asserts that Jesus was in the beginning. In other words, Jesus was already there at the beginning, which is simply a way of saying that Jesus is eternal. He has no beginning. He has no end. That's what John is saying here. Jesus already existed in the beginning. He never had a beginning. He was in the beginning and from the beginning. That's exactly what Jesus himself claimed in John 8, 58. He told the Jews, before Abraham was, I am. In other words, I have always been and I always will be because I am eternal. I am deity. And the Jewish audience knew exactly what he was claiming because the very next verse of John 8 says, so they picked up stones to kill him. They thought it was blasphemous for him to claim to be eternal and co-equal with God the Father. Sometimes, and you've probably, some of you have had these conversations, you will converse with people who are involved in the cults, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, etc., who deny the deity of Christ and therefore deny his eternality. And often they will say, Well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Try to tell that to the Jews of John chapter 8. They knew exactly what he was claiming. Claiming to be the eternal God, which is why they wanted to stone him. Jesus is eternal, co-equal with the Father. John affirms that truth here in the opening phrase of verse 1. In addition, John also reminds his readers that he was an eyewitness of the Lord Jesus and his ministry. Here in verse 1, John tells us that he heard Jesus, he saw Jesus, he gazed upon Jesus, and he touched Jesus. We know from the Gospel of John, he even rested his head on the chest of Jesus. All of these phrases are strong affirmations of the fact that Jesus was truly and fully human. He was a genuine man. Now pause for just a moment and consider what we've seen in such a brief exposure to 1 John. 
before we even get out of verse 1, John has set forth both the deity and the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is God, he is man. 100% God, 100% man. Now this raises a question. If John is talking about the Lord Jesus here in verse 1, then why does he use the neuter pronoun and not the masculine? As you can see, the verse opens with the phrase, that which was from the beginning, or what was from the beginning. Why not begin with the expression, he who was from the beginning? That's a valid question. And I think the answer is this. John is not only talking about the Lord Jesus Christ himself, but also the gospel message about Jesus Christ. He is referring to the gospel message that's centered in the Lord Jesus and has been proclaimed about Jesus. And that is why the last phrase in verse 1 says, concerning the word of life, or about the word of life. This letter is about the message of life that centers in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it was written by someone who was an eyewitness. John described his eyewitness experience by saying he had heard, he had seen, he had looked upon, and he had handled. Did you happen to notice that he mentioned the aspect of seeing twice in this same verse? First, he uses the word heard. And fourthly, he refers to touching or handling. Between those two, he uses words, two words, that describe seeing and looking. Why does John mention that aspect twice? I believe it is because he wants to emphasize the fact that he and the other disciples not only saw Jesus, they gazed upon him and they studied him. They didn't just look at him with some kind of glance or distant look. They observed him. They gazed upon him. They stared at him. They examined him. They studied him. Wouldn't you? I mean, think about it. If you were in the presence of Jesus Christ, in the flesh, beside you, wouldn't you look at him all you could? Wouldn't you look at him with amazement? Who is this man? What, what is he? Wouldn't you gaze upon him? John observed Jesus closely. So he wants to make sure that we understand that this was no cursory glance. What John writes in this letter came from three years of listening to Jesus and observing Jesus and watching Jesus and studying Jesus and even touching Jesus. Besides, what John wrote in this letter was inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. And so he says in verse 2, the life was manifested or revealed or appeared, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. This is another statement that parallels the opening prologue of the Gospel of John. Here John says, the life was manifested or the life, was, the life appeared, depending on your translation. John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Both of those verses are expressing the same marvelous reality. John 1.14 personifies the Word, and this verse personifies the life. The Word of God became flesh, 
The life of God was manifested. Jesus, the eternal one, has come and his work provided the way for mankind to have eternal life. That's what John is exclaiming here in verses 1 and 2. As a little side note, when you encounter the concept of eternal life in the pages of the Bible, don't think, uh, don't think of it as, as our human life continuing indefinitely forever and ever. That's probably the way most Christians think about eternal life. They just think our life goes on forever and ever. That's not the idea at all. Eternal life is the very life of God and the very life of Christ. It is a kind of life and quality of life, not merely a duration of life. In fact, I think it would be fair and safe to say that the emphasis is on kind of life, quality of life, not duration. Though duration is in the phrase or, in the phrase or expression eternal life. But the emphasis is it is the very life of God and that's why it is eternal. So that's what is behind this phrase eternal life. Because Jesus is eternal, the life he has is eternal, and the life he grants us is eternal. We receive his life. All of that is in John's mind as he pens this second verse. He says, this one who is life was with the Father. The last part of that statement could be translated this way, way, face to face with the Father. From the beginning... Jesus shared in a co-equal, face-to-face relationship with God the Father. That's the relationship Jesus shared and enjoyed with God the Father throughout all eternity past. But he willingly left his exalted position to come to this earth so that he could display the Father. That's why he told Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. John 1.18 says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has made Him known. That's the same truth John is expressing here. It's obvious, and maybe you picked up on this just as we were reading through it, it's obvious that John is excited as he writes these words. You can see that in the way he basically repeats himself in this prologue. Back in verse 1 he says, We have seen Here in verse 2, he says, we have seen. Then twice in verse 3, he says, the life was manifested or appeared. You see, when you're excited about something, it's easy to repeat yourself. I'm sure you've seen this in others, maybe even noticed it in yourself. The excitement of wanting to say something often results in repetition. That's the feel I get when I read these opening verses. John, it's almost as if I picture John writing frantically. He's wanting to put this down. And he says, I I heard him. I've seen him. I've gazed at him. I've touched him. He came to this earth. I saw him. He was with the Father, but he came to us. And now I want to tell you about him and the life he came to give us. That's the way we ought to read this prologue. And verse 3 continues the repetition It says, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the third verse in a row in which John emphasizes his unique privilege as an eyewitness. In verse 1, he said, he heard, he saw, he touched. In verse 2, he said he saw. Here again in verse 3, he says he saw and he heard. 
John understood what a unique privilege he had to be an eyewitness of the glory of the God-man, Jesus Christ. He never got over it. It never became commonplace to him. And remember, he's writing this maybe 60 years after the last time he had seen Jesus. But it was still as thrilling for him as when he was a young man. In Matthew 13, 17, Jesus told his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. John was one of the privileged few. John had that privilege. And because he did, he wanted to share the wonder of that experience with others. That's why he wrote this letter. As you know, we have not had the privilege of seeing Jesus yet. Someday we will, but that hasn't happened yet. 1 Peter 1.8 says that even though we haven't seen Jesus, we love Him. We love Him with joy inexpressible and full of glory. That's Peter's exact expression. Joy inexpressible and full of glory. Is that the love you have for Christ? So even though we haven't seen Him, we can still experience the life He came to bring us. In John 10.10, Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it more abundantly. That's why John wrote this letter. He says here in verse 3, that you may have fellowship with us. This word fellowship can also be translated partnership. Think of it that way. So that you can have partnership with us. Those of us who possess eternal life by virtue of relationship with Jesus Christ, are partners with one another. Beloved, we're partners. We are fellow partakers of the life of Christ. That's what we have in common, even if we have nothing else in common. We may, we may be from different parts of the country. We may be from different parts of the world. We may be from different family backgrounds. We may be from different tribes. We may have different skin color. We may have different accents. We may have different likes. We may have different dislikes. There may be a lot of things about us that are different, but if we possess eternal life in Christ, that is our common bond. That's what John wants us to understand, and that's what John wants us to experience. He longed for believers to enjoy what they have in common instead of focusing on their differences. He wanted believers to enjoy their relationships with one another as they also enjoy their relationship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. That vertical relationship is the basis for our horizontal relationships. What I mean is the starting point for genuine fellowship with one another is to have fellowship with the Father and with the Son. Now, beloved, I want you to think about that concept. Think about that statement. If we are saved, if we are truly Christians, we actually have fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. In John 17, 3, Jesus prayed to the Father and said, This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Understand something. We don't merely believe in the Father, and we don't merely believe in the Son. We know the Father. We know the Son. We have, we have a relationship with them. 
That is a mind-blowing thought. It is so remarkable that John emphasizes it here in this verse with the word truly or indeed. For some reason, the New International Version, the NIV, doesn't translate the word, but it is there in the Greek text. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. That is a staggering reality that we could have fellowship with the eternal God of the universe. And beloved, I would submit to you that this is the central truth of Christianity. No exaggeration. This is it. This is the central truth of Christianity. Christianity isn't merely about dogma. It is not merely about doctrine. It is not merely about ethics. It is not merely about morality. Rather, it is about having fellowship with the Father and fellowship with the Son. Those who don't have a relationship with them will, according to Matthew 7, 23, hear Jesus say, come judgment day, I never knew you. Depart from me. We have a real, genuine relationship with the Father and with the Son. And because we do, that forms the basis for our relationships with one another. That's one of the things John is going to talk about in this letter. But he also had another purpose closely related. Notice verse 4, the final verse of the prologue. He says, And these things we write to you that your or our, we'll comment on that in a moment, our, your joy may be full. The Holy Spirit prompted and guided John to write this letter to promote joy. When we understand the privilege that is ours to know the Father and to know the Son, that ought to fill us with joy. When we grasp the fact that we have eternal life, that ought to fill us with joy. In fact, I would say this. If those truths don't light your fire, then your wood is wet. You've got a problem. When the disciples of Jesus came back from a short-term mission, They were all excited that they were able to cast out demons. Jesus had granted them this power for their ministry. They were all excited about that. And they came back, Lord, even the spirits are subject to us. Do you remember what Jesus said to them? He said this to them in Luke 10, 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. But rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. That is reason to have joy. Understanding the privilege that is ours to know the Father ought to fill us with joy. Appreciating the privilege that is ours to know the Son ought to fill us with joy. Grasping the fact that we have eternal life ought to fill us with joy. So John is going to write about those truths in this letter. That's what he tells us here in verse 4. These things we write. I'm going to write this letter to you so that you will understand this in a greater way, appreciate it in a greater way, and thus have joy. Now some of your versions, depending on what translation you use, have the word our instead of the word your. There's a textual issue here in the ancient manuscripts, but both ideas are true. Let me explain. John wrote this letter so that his readers would have fullness of joy. 
And because of his shepherd's heart, that is, because of his love for people, God's people especially, if his readers had fullness of joy, John would in turn have fullness of joy. He was bursting at the seams to communicate these things because he wanted his readers to enjoy the fellowship he was enjoying with the Father, with the Son, and with other believers. And to know that they were filled with joy would fill him with joy. So that's what this letter is all about. Are you excited to go through it and digest it? I am. It is a thrilling letter. Thrilling letter. Written by the last surviving apostle. Maybe the only apostle not to have died a martyr's death from what we can piece together in historical tradition. This letter written by the last surviving apostle, is just as relevant to us today as it was to those who received it in the first century. After all, if we know Jesus Christ personally as our own Lord and Savior, then we have the same life, catch this now, we have the same life pulsating through our souls that John had. And the same life pulsating through our hearts that the believers in the first century had. We have the same common life, the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know him? Now, I didn't ask if you know about him. Do you know him? Do you know him personally? Do you know him genuinely? As we wind down this morning, I want you to back up with me to the first book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. And this statement by Jesus was at least one of the reasons why John emphasizes so strongly in his letter the importance of knowing the Father, knowing the Son, the the privilege of knowing the Father and knowing the Son. John would have heard Jesus say this. John didn't forget that Jesus said this, which is in part what prompted John to talk about how important it is to know Not know about, but to know the Father and to know the Son. This is Jesus describing what is going to happen on Judgment Day. Matthew 7, verse 21. He said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, don't, don't skip over that word, many. We're not talking about just a few people here. A smattering of people. Many, our Lord said. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord. Now notice what they do. They begin to list their religious accomplishments. Their religious credentials. Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? That's not an exhaustive list, by the way. It's not all people will say, oh, Lord, Lord, I was a good church goer. I was a church member. I was, you know, this denomination. I was whatever. People will list their religious credentials. Lord, let me in. Look at all that I have here to offer. Verse 23, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. Listen. You don't want to hear those words. Believe me, you don't want to hear those words. 
I never knew you. Depart from me. Surrender your life to Jesus Christ today and come to know him personally and genuinely. Let's bow together as we close. As we bow our heads, I encourage you to close your eyes even so that you're not distracted by any movement around you. And I want you to really consider which category you are in. Are you in the category of those of whom John spoke in his letter, those who know the Father, those who know the Son, they have fellowship with the Father, they have fellowship with the Son. You're either in that category or you're in this category of Matthew 7. You're in the category of people to whom the Lord will say, I never knew you. We never had any relationship. So depart from me. It's one or the other. So I ask you this morning, do you know Jesus Christ? Not do you know about him or do you know of him? Do you really know him genuinely, personally, intimately? If you do not, or if there's any doubt in your mind, right where you are seated, right there in the quietness of your own heart, ask Jesus Christ to come into your life to forgive your sins. Tell him you want to know him. Say, Lord Jesus, come into my my life. I want to know you. I want to know you personally. I want your salvation. I want to live my life for you. You don't have to say it that way, but express to the Lord your desire to be right with him, to know him, and he will answer that prayer. Oh, Father, what a privilege it is to call you our Father. What a privilege it is to be able to address you that way in sincerity, in accuracy, to really be able to say that you are our Father. We know you. We know your Son, Jesus Christ. And therefore, we will never hear these words of Jesus spoken to us, I never knew you, depart from me. But Father, in all likelihood, there are some gathered here this morning who are in this category as we speak. That at the present... If they were to die this day, this moment, and then come judgment day, they would stand before the Lord Jesus and hear him say, I never knew you. Depart from me. Father, how we pray, how we beseech, how we ask and request of you that you would open their hearts, open their eyes to their true spiritual condition so they will realize that they they have no genuine relationship with you, no relationship with your Son, Jesus Christ, but that they can have. And so may your Holy Spirit bring understanding, conviction, enlightenment, that this very day they would surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ, come to know him, so they can have fellowship with you, Father, fellowship with your Son, Jesus, fellowship with other believers. Please accomplish that in the hearts and lives of those who are here with us who do not know you. And as we close, we want to express the the profound gratitude in our hearts for this relationship that you have allowed us to have because of what Jesus, your son, did on the cross as our substitute. Thank you, thank you, thank you. 
that we can have a relationship with you, even though, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, now we see through a, a glass darkly. It's not like it will be. We've never seen the Lord Jesus, but we love him. It's, it's somewhat a veiled relationship now because we have to walk by faith, not by sight. But someday we'll stand face to face with the Lord Jesus and see the one whom we have loved in life and the one whom we love even greater in eternity. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray these things in his precious and powerful and priceless name. Amen.